Hello everyone, it's Mark Goodacre here. Welcome to the NT Pod, the podcast all about the New Testament and Christian origins. It's episode 52 and today we're asking, who is this son of man? That's a quotation from John 12, 34, when the crowd say, who is this son of man? Because they've heard Jesus using this bizarre term and they don't really understand it. And you might say that it's a term that's resonated across the centuries because people have continued to ask, what does it mean when Jesus keeps calling himself the son of man in the Gospels? And I'd like to try and disentangle it by bringing out seven statements about the Son of Man. This is how I like to do it when I'm teaching the subject, which will help us to find a way through the difficulties of looking at this topic. The first of these statements is that the term the Son of Man only occurs in the Gospels. It's very common in the Gospels, but it's almost completely absent from other early Christian literature. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it? That's rather bizarre. Why is it that early Christians just don't use the term at all, especially Paul doesn't use it at all? And then when you get to the Gospels, you just see it on page after page. And it's really interesting when you look at Paul in particular, because the Apostle Paul even has a passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is quite similar to a passage in Matthew 24, a passage that in Matthew uses the term son of man, but in Paul doesn't. So what on earth is going on with that? That sets up the mystery in quite an interesting way. And then a further curiosity is that in all those occasions that you find the son of man in the gospels, you only find it on Jesus's lips. It's not something that the narrator uses. It's not something that other people use with that one exception of John 12, 34, where the crowd say, who is this son of man? And there, they're sort of quoting Jesus. So it looks like the reader of the gospels is expected to see it as something that Jesus himself sees as distinctive and particular. So that's a couple of things we can say already. It occurs primarily in the Gospels and not in other early Christian literature, and it only occurs on Jesus' lips when it does occur. What else? Third statement. The Son of Man almost always appears with the article in the Greek. The construction in Greek is a bit odd, actually. Hochwios tu anthropu, the Son of the Man. It's really stressing this particular son of man from the look of it. And that itself might provide some sort of clue as to what's going on. The scholar Charlie Mole, for example, thought that what Jesus was doing there or what the evangelists were doing was they were saying it's this particular son of man, this apocalyptic son of man, which will lead us on to one or two of the other interesting statements in a moment. So statement number four the Son of Man often appears in contexts where I could be substituted. So quite often where one gospel has Son of Man, another gospel will have the term I. Or where one gospel has I, another gospel has Son of Man. And there's no clear pattern. It's not like Matthew always puts Son of Man, whereas Mark always puts I. It's not like that. They go both directions. So the evangelists themselves seem to understand the phrase as being something that was a kind of a comparison to the term I. Was it Jesus's own distinctive means of uh, explaining who he was? I think it's it's a little bit like when Prince Charles uses the term one, you know, one does this and so on, because uh, it, it's, it's using an indirect means of saying I. So that's our first four statements. The fifth one, there are no clear pre-Christian parallels to the kind of usage that you find in the Gospels. The term that son of man does occur in an interesting apocalypse called the similitudes of Enoch, which is kind of the middle section of a bigger book called One Enoch. And there, that son of man 
is the same person, as far as we can tell, as the Messiah. So that would be interesting. And that, if it could be shown to be pre-Christian, would would show that at least some other people in the period, in Second Temple Judaism, were thinking of Son of Man and Messiah as in some way associated terms. The difficulty, unfortunately, with the similitudes of Enoch is it's really difficult to date. The key bits of it aren't found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. So it's a difficult one. It is found elsewhere. I mean, for Ezra, another text that's not found in the Hebrew Bible, it's found in the Apocrypha. For Ezra does use the term son of man. And there it is kind of associated with Messiah. But it's definitely a post-70 text. It's a text that is sometime later than Jesus and possibly later than the New Testament. Could just show the kind of stuff that's around in the first century, but it isn't as clear an indication as we might like that there is a kind of pre-Christian usage of Son of Man, Messiah at the same time. And that brings us to statement number six. The term occurs in three different kinds of material in the Gospels. The three different kinds of material are Jesus's life, Jesus's suffering and death, and Jesus's parousia or return or appearance. An example of the first kind where it occurs with Jesus's life is when Jesus says the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. An example, that's Mark 2, 27 to 28. An example of the connection of the Son of Man with suffering and death occurs in the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi, Mark 8, 31 to 32, when Peter confesses Jesus as Christ and then Jesus replies by telling him to keep it secret and going on and explaining who the Son of Man is and how he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and so on. So that's an example of a suffering son of man statement. And the third kind is this kind that relates to Jesus's return or the parousia. And a good example of that occurs in Mark 13. At that time, people will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So three different kinds of material in the Gospels relating to the Son of Man. Now, the last one of those leads us into our seventh and final statement, which is that Daniel chapter seven is the key Son of Man text in the Gospels. In other words, the text that the Gospel writers themselves constantly refer to when they're thinking in terms of Son of Man is Daniel chapter seven. So Daniel seven thirteen has in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. In verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Oh, I've noticed I was using a non-gender inclusive translation there, but uh, let's let that pass for the time being. So that key text, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, is the one that's quoted in the Gospels. You get it in Mark 3 and you get it in Mark 14. So when the evangelists are thinking about this term, son of man, they're refracting it through the lens of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. That does appear to be key. And we should add at that juncture that when Daniel is saying one like a son of man, we should probably translate this something like one like a human being. It's not got that article in like we were talking about earlier on. It's not one like the son of the man. It's one like a son of man, a son of Adam, Ben Adam. It's... Um, it's just a term that people use in the Old Testament to talk about human beings. But what's curious about the Daniel text isn't so much that term, the Son of Man, but the imagery that comes with it, the, the clouds of heaven and so on. And that's what shows you that in the Gospels, they're thinking in terms of Daniel 7 because of the cluster of imagery that comes with the term. So 
what kind of sense can we make of all this? How can we disentangle this really enigmatic problem of what's going on with the Son of Man in the Gospels? Well, we're not going to be able to solve the whole thing in a single episode of the NT pod, unfortunately, but we might be able to shed a bit of light if we try. One thing which I should flag up as a real problem is the issue that Jesus, of course, spoke in Aramaic, whereas the Gospels were written in Greek. And that means that there's something taking place in the transition from Aramaic to Greek. And it's one of the biggest difficulties when you retrovert from Greek to Aramaic and try and work out what on earth the expression could have meant when Jesus said it. And there's lots of interesting scholarship on how you navigate your way through that kind of thing. But what you can say with some degree of clarity is what the term apparently means in the Gospels, or at least how the evangelists use it. And I'll draw attention to one thing in particular that I think is really worth paying attention to. And it's that when it's used in Mark's Gospel, it's a term that Jesus is happy to own. It's a public term for him. And it's curious because when the term Messiah occurs in Mark's Gospel, it's a term that Jesus doesn't really want to own publicly, is it? I mean, you might remember that we had an episode of the Antipod earlier on about the Messianic secret issue. And this is that when Peter confesses Jesus as Christ, Jesus tells him to be quiet about it. So it's not a term, Messiah isn't, that Jesus wants to own in public, but Son of Man is. He says it all the time in public, in front of crowds, in front of the disciples, in front of opponents. He says it all the time, and he claims authority for himself as this character of the Son of Man. So it's the term that's used in Mark's Gospel to clarify and expand on what Jesus is as Messiah. Notice in those two key texts about Jesus as Messiah, he goes on to talk about the Son of Man. So in chapter 8, when you have the confession at Caesarea Philippi, Peter talks about Messiah, but Jesus goes on to say that the Son of Man will be one who suffers and dies. And notice in when it occurs in chapter 14 with the high priest, that when the high priest says, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed, Jesus answers in terms of the Son of Man, how the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of heaven and how he will come with the clouds. So it's the term that Jesus uses of himself in Mark's Gospel to summarise his career. It's the one he uses about the authority that he has on earth. It's the one that he uses about the suffering and death that he will go through. And it's the one that he uses about the future coming apocalyptic event. So whatever you make of it in the life of the historical Jesus, for the Gospels and for Mark in particular, it's something key about who Jesus is. It summarises his career on earth as one with authority, as one who will suffer and die, and as one who will come again with the clouds of heaven. Well, thanks very much for listening to the latest episode of the NT Pod. It's always good to have your company. You can find me on the web at podacre.blogspot.com, on facebook.com slash ntpod, or on Duke's iTunes U, or on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to being with you again soon. Bye-bye.